0: Got a Bible, would you open up to Ephesians chapter 5? We've spent the month of January talking about authority and submission. Um, I think it was the first week of January that we talked about the authority of God and how that's exercised through the scriptures. Is that correct? then we talked about submission and how Jesus is our model uh, for a submitted life. We've talked about submission one to another. We've talked about submission to church leaders. And uh, and this morning we're going to talk about submission in the home. We're going to talk about authority and submission in the home. And a couple things that I want to touch on before we get started today. Just uh, a couple things that you need to know about submission is that freedom for the Christian is found in submission. Freedom for the Christian is not found in independence or rebellion, but freedom is found in submission. We know that Jesus brought about redemption and salvation through submission. Another thing that I I want to bring up is that as Christians, we're not just called to submit to God, which I'm sure you've heard before. But we're called to submit to delegated authority, that God's given people authority in certain spheres of life. This includes the home, it includes the church, and it includes the state. And uh, scripture tells us that God himself has established authority And to rebel against authority is to rebel against God himself. Romans 13 says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. I know what you're thinking when you read a passage like this. It's what I'm thinking when I read something like this. Is I go, wait a second. Authorities abuse their power. We've all probably been hurt by authority. And we're thinking to ourselves, how could God ask us to do something that hurts? How could the Bible ask you to submit to maybe uh, your husband? How could the Bible ask you to submit to the boss that you have right now? The answer to abusive authority is not to chuck it all together. The answer to there being abuse and authority is not to get rid of authority. It's to contend for righteous authority that rules under the authority of Jesus. We know that the authority of Jesus is always perfect, but earthly authorities are always imperfect. Always. Always imperfect. And if an authority is acting sinfully and breaking the laws of a higher power, rather than abandoning authority systems altogether, We should appeal to a higher authority for help. This is the way this looks in a church. Um, A husband here at Radiant Church is submitted to God. And he's also submitted to the church leaders here. And if if he's speaking to you harshly and speaking to your kids harshly, you don't abandon authority. You appeal to a higher authority and you come to the church leaders. And you say, my husband is speaking harshly with me. I've come to him. I've talked to him. He's dealing really harshly with our kids. And we'll we'll be really excited to knock on his door, ask him what's going on, um, and and bring correction. So the answer is not, again, just because something's been abused, it doesn't mean we get rid of it. The answer uh, for abuse and authority is to appeal to a higher authority. Jesus is our example of how to act when we're in authority, and he is our example of how to react when we're under authority. So today as we talk about submission and authority in the home, uh, know that. Know those things about submission. There's a lot of uh, confusion today about marriage. Uh, I would say there's a lot of confusion about gender roles. I would say there's probably five guys here today in women's pants. There's a lot of confusion about gender roles. Who has women's pants on? Just own it. Anyone? I feel like I've been talking to more and more guys who are like, yeah, I actually got these at the girls section. There's a lot of confusion and, and And even to suggest that there are gender roles, even even to imply or suggest that there are gender roles that's seen as narrow minded, regressive, archaic, traditional this isn't um, you know this isn't a very uh popular topic, the one we're going to talk about today. As I studied this week, there's a quote that sits above my desk, and and I was kind of um, drawn to it this week, as we're going to talk about what the Bible says about uh, authority and submission in the home. And it says this, that each generation must rediscover the truths of Scripture for itself. In doing so, it must labor to connect the unchanging answers of God's Word with the ever-changing questions of its culture. Sometimes this project is successfully undertaken, and the result is a glorious resurgence of a faithful and fruitful Christian church. Sometimes this project is unsuccessfully undertaken, and the tragic result is a false teaching that renders the church impotent to see the power of the gospel unleashed, because she either has a false Jesus or she is embarrassed by the real one, I know that this topic when we talk about um, home we 're talking about something that 's really personal and, um, and and Tiffany and I have been on a bit of a journey for the last three or four years, and, and I want to share it briefly and share where we 're coming from because There was probably a time, probably about three or four years ago, that we would have dismissed everything that the Bible had to say about gender roles as simply first century Rome. Oh, that's just how they treated women back then. Everything that the Bible had to say about marriage, everything that it had to say about the home and how it's set up, we just dismissed that as being... First century Rome, we dismissed it and said things like, Well, that was then and this is now. We said things like, Well, that doesn't line up with the rest of scripture. And that doesn't really line up with the God we know either. And so we were very much in an egalitarian camp. Um, And really, even to bring the subject up was somewhat uncomfortable. And what happened when we planted this church is that Tiffany was working, working hard, had a successful photography studio that was supporting and providing for our family. And I was planting this church, which looked like reading, (laughs) playing guitar, and watching Avery. I'd like to say that there was more to it, but at that point, it was pretty simple. We were meeting uh, in a home. It was 30, maybe 40 people. And Tiffany was providing for our family, and I was watching Avery. And again, what I'm sharing with you is something really personal. And I know that your journey might look uh, different, but, but I felt like it was important to share this journey that we've been on. And uh, one day I was reading a journal from someone else who had planted a church, and he was talking about how his wife was supporting the family while he worked for nothing in ministry. And he shared that his wife was working as a nurse and that he was planting the church. And what he wrote in this journal was that slowly but surely after a little while he began to resent his wife and she began to resent him. And when I read it, I kind of immediately started to cry. And I didn't necessarily know why, I didn't know uh, what it struck, but I remember I read the entire book that day and marched at home and read it with Tiffany. And I think what had started to happen for us is that we started to realize that I wanted Tiffany's life and she wanted mine. And when she would come home and complain about her day, I was thinking to myself, that sounds like a great day. And when I would start to complain about my day, she would think to herself, oh, I wish I could have gone to the bank and made a deposit. I wish I could have done laundry today. I wish I could have hung out and played guitar with Avery. This is what I want to do with my days. So what was happening is she was complaining, and I was like, man, that sounds good. And then I was complaining to her, and she was like, gosh, I want your life, you know. And there was a bit of resentment in our relationship. And so I remember coming home and reading this with her. And what happened for us is we dove back into what the Bible has to say about roles in the home. And for the first time, I think we're open to what it had to say. You know, because I know that men have used authority to do terrible, terrible things. I know that for uh, centuries we have oppressed women. I understand that, but I think that that is a result of the fall, and in our attempt to undo the fall, we're actually trying to undo creation, when I think we should focus our attention on the fall, and that's what I started to realize as I read passages about what Paul was saying about gender roles, is he kept going back to creation, not to the fall, And what Tiffany and I started to discover is that there was something different about us. I was actually uh, reading um, a quote from a feminist who said this. She said that women, she was making a case that women were better than men. Um, You know. Uh, But (laughs) maybe true, I don't know. But she, um, she was saying that men... Um, believe that they're becoming mature when they separate. That men think they're maturing uh, when they become independent. That for men, maturity is defined by separation, and their separation defines their impact on the world. And then she was saying that women think they're maturing as they connect, as they attach. And they believe that their impact on the world comes through their connection. And as I, and so she was making a case that women work better as like CEOs and on teams. And um, as I read that, I thought, wow, that's so interesting. And I don't necessarily think that one's better than the other, but I, I want to say that the Bible teaches that there are gender roles. The Bible um, teaches that there are roles. And even in this chapter that we'll read in Ephesians 5, different things are assigned to the woman than are assigned to the men. Because men are good at things that women aren't good at, and women are good at things that men aren't good at. He brings specific instruction to each. Because how many of you know that if someone has a gift... If women are gifted relationally. If they believe that they're maturing when they connect. How many know that everyone's gift has a dark side? Everyone's gift has a dark side. If you're a strong leader here today, your gift has a dark side. If you're a people person here today, your gift has a dark side. Every gift that God gives also has a dark side. And for the man, there's a dark side to the gift that God's given him. And it always plays out in tyranny. What we'll find out here in Ephesians 5 is what C.S. Lewis said. The crown that's given to a man in Ephesians 5 is a crown of thorns. And so for women who've been gifted in certain ways, there's a dark side to their gift as well. And sometimes it looks like dependence on someone else. So anyways, that's a fat rabbit trail. There are gender roles, and the, the Bible teaches that there are clear gender roles. It doesn't get as specific as traditionalists like to think it does. It doesn't say women stay home. It doesn't say women shouldn't work. It doesn't say those things. It doesn't get as specific, but it does teach that there are difference in roles inside the home. Let's read this together. Let's start in verse 22. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. We're going to focus in on the marriage relationship. What I'll say to the, to the kids here today is uh, obey your parents. In the Lord, for this is right. And you've heard this before. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. We're going to focus in on on Christian marriage. And if we don't start um, much of the sermon this morning, I actually preached last March. Um, For those of you who heard it last March, it'll serve as a reminder. The truth is, is that I believe last March the church was half this size. Um, So there are some new people who need to hear what God has to say to them as husbands. And if you're single this morning, please don't tune me out, uh, because I think that the sermon this morning will apply to you and your search for a significant other. But if we don't start by talking about the premise of Christian marriage, and if we don't start by talking about the purpose of Christian marriage, you're not going to receive anything Paul has to say here. If we don't start by talking about the purpose of Christian marriage, you're not going to hear what this passage has to say. Because if you think the purpose of Christian marriage is your fulfillment, if you think that the purpose of Christian marriage is that you would be served, this doesn't sound like a recipe for a good marriage, does it? This doesn't sound like happiness, does it? So if we don't understand the purpose that God has for marriage, and if we, don't, if we don't understand the premise for Christian marriage, we won't understand this passage. So let me start by talking about the premise of Christian marriage. And what I don't like, what I can't stand about when people turn to this section in Ephesians 5 is that they neglect what comes before it. Turn with me. And let's start a little bit higher because what's interesting is that this description of marriage is a subheading under a larger heading of what life looks like when you're filled with the Spirit. The heading over this passage is what life looks like filled with the Spirit. And the subheading is Christian marriage. And so I want to talk about the premise, the heading that comes above this. Start in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. When you're filled with the Spirit, start addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. What I can't stand is that's where it typically starts. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your husbands. And we don't see the context that this is in. This is one continuous thought that's happening here for Paul. They didn't separate this with chapters and verses till a long time later. So it's not like Paul's talking like, hey, make melody, sing, serve one another, submit yourself to one another. Now, that's enough about life in the Spirit. Now let's talk about marriage. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands. This is one continuous thought for Paul. And he's talking about life filled with the Spirit. Paul's saying here in Ephesians chapter 5 that when someone is filled with the Spirit, their self-centeredness is eroded. When someone's filled with the Spirit, their self-centeredness is eroded. When someone receives the truth of the gospel, their self-centered nature is chipped away at. And he says that people that are filled with the Spirit, they actually start to submit themselves People that are filled with the Spirit and walk with the Spirit start to submit themselves. People that are filled with the Spirit start to serve. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I have an idea that those that are filled with the Spirit are served. That those that walk with the Spirit are those that are served. But what's Paul saying here is those that are filled with the Spirit serve. I know that Christian television has probably told you that if you're filled with the Spirit, then you have someone who carries your water, and you don't have to do anything. That's not the truth. It's not just that when you're filled with the Spirit, you get an armor bearer. When you're filled with the Spirit, you serve. This is what it looks like when you get filled with the Holy Spirit. You begin to serve. You start to lay down your life. If if you're here today and you've received the gospel, you've already seen this. You've already experienced the gospel chipping away at your self-centeredness. When the Spirit takes the reality of the gospel and it drives it into the fabric of our lives, it begins to erode our self-centeredness. When the gospel becomes something something more than an abstract theory... And starts to become a reality for us. We begin to submit ourselves. We begin to serve. A couple ways that the gospel gets at your self centeredness. It's kind of an interesting interesting thing, the the, the gospel. Because the, the first thing that the gospel comes to us and tells us is that it's really bad. It's way worse than you think. This is the first word of the gospel is repent. The gospel comes to us and it brings a conviction. The gospel then tells us that you can never clean your life up. Pretty bleak, yeah? The gospel says you can't save yourself. No amount of self-effort will save you. The gospel tells us that it's only the death of God's son that will save you. It's a lot worse than you think is the, the first thing that the gospel tells us. And I would encourage you again as we usually do, don't ignore this. This is a good thing. We continue to want conversion in our church and that won't come without conviction. And in our attempt as a church to do away with condemnation, we've done, out, you know, we've done away with conviction. And it's a good thing. Because the second thing that the gospel tells us, almost simultaneously, is that you're more loved than you think. It first tells you that it's really bad and it's worse than you think. And then the second thing, at the same time the gospel tells us, that you're more loved than you think. Because it's God that's given his life as a ransom for yours. So the gospel is at the same time both humbling and affirming. The gospel at the same time tears us down and builds us up. And I know that for some of you who have encountered the truth of the gospel, you know this to be true. Somehow we're terribly humbled and really affirmed. The gospel removes our self-centeredness because it humbles us. But then it removes our neediness because it affirms us. And so we become, as people who believe the gospel, the type of people who can lay their lives down. The type of people who aren't looking for thanks, aren't looking for strokes. Aren't looking to have our needs met. Because the truth of the gospel has come and affirmed us that we're more loved than we think. And now you can put the needs of others before your own. This is the segue into marriage. And if you're here and you're wondering what does that last sentence have to do with marriage, let me repeat it again. Now you can put the needs of others before your own. Now we enter Paul's description of marriage. So the premise of Christian marriage is two people filled with the spirit. Two people who have, been, uh, who have had the gospel driven into them. They've been filled with the spirit. It started to eat away at their self-centeredness. And now they marry. Last time we we shared this this with the church, I had all the single uh, women. I was just listening to the tape of it. I had all the single women stand. And I'm not going to do that this morning I think a couple couples broke up as a result of this sermon last time. But what I want to say uh, to you young women is don't you dare give a man this type of leadership in your life unless his ego has been seriously reshaped by the gospel of the cross and he's been filled with the Spirit of God. Don't do it. Don't give a man this type of place, don't give a man this type of leadership in your life unless his ego has been seriously transformed by the gospel of the cross and he's been filled with the Spirit. Don't do it. So the premise of Christian marriage is that when two people have been filled with the Spirit of God and they get married, what Paul is saying is that the woman should grant the husband leadership and the husband should lead like Jesus. When two Christians filled with the Spirit get hitched, the woman should grant the husband leadership and the husband should lead like Jesus. Jesus. The purpose of Christian marriage. Another way to ask this is to say, uh, why do people um, get married? Why do people get hitched? And in Paul's day, and still in some traditional settings, some traditional cultures, uh, marriage is a business transaction. You didn't marry in Paul's day for love, you didn't marry because of romantic feelings. You didn't marry for personal fulfillment. Uh, You married to help your family secure itself. And you married to position yourself in the world. And so marriage was about position and about security. And I think in some ways that's still true for us as well. But in our day, in a Western culture, it's a little different than this. We marry for love and we marry for individual fulfillment. We marry Mr. Right. We marry uh, Mrs. Right. We marry uh, people because we love the way we feel around them. We marry people because we love the affection that we're getting from them. And I'm not actually going to say that... I don't think that either of these things are wrong. They just reduce the purpose of marriage... Because Paul's going to tell us that the purpose of marriage is not either of these things. The purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment. And when you understand that the purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment, you understand what Paul's saying here in Ephesians 5. Let's read this together. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, sorry, with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way husbands love their wa- should love their wives as their own bodies, even, uh, sorry, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever uh, hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and what I am saying right here refers to Christ in the church. The purpose of a Christian marriage is to reenact the truth of the gospel. The purpose of Christian marriage is that you would be like those actors on Unsolved Mysteries. Those two actors that that are um, reliving the crime scene, making a few bucks. No one was there, but there's a reenactment of the crime going on. Your marriage is gospel reenactment. And what do we know about the gospel? We know that Jesus Christ loved us when we weren't lovely. And so, when the scriptures tell us, Husbands, love your wives, and you want to raise your hand and say, My wife is not lovely, she's not. I would say to you, Perfect, let's reenact the gospel. Because Jesus loved us when we weren't lovely. And he kept loving us. And he kept loving us until we become lovely. That's what Ephesians 5 tells us is the gospel. He loves us, loves us, loves us when we're not lovely. And he loves us, loves us, loves us, until we become lovely. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, if you, you uh, wives are like, respect my husband? He plays Halo more than he plays with our kids. He's 35, he plays video games all day. Respect my husband? Again, if the purpose of marriage is your personal fulfillment, this sounds like a death sentence. But if you know that the purpose of Christian marriage is to reenact the gospel, then I want to say to you this, wives, respect your husbands until he becomes respectable. Respect him, respect him, respect him until he becomes respectable because we're reenacting the gospel here. We, uh, (coughs) there's uh, something going on in our day and age that sociologists are calling commodification. And essentially commodification is this, that we've become such good consumers that we are now consumers in our relationships. What we've done is that we've exchanged our social relationships for economic exchange relationships. What they're starting to see in our culture, the trend that they're seeing, is that we've traded these social relationships for essentially consumer relationships. So your your, uh, consumer relationship is a relationship that you have with a grocery store. And it's based on that grocery store meeting your needs. When you have a consumer relationship with something, like a a Save Mart, you have a relationship with Save Mart um, based on them giving you the best product for the best price and it being close to your home. And in consumer relationships, when a Winco opens up, and it has cheaper prices, and it's closer to your house, and you feel like you're getting better service, your needs are being better met, you say bye-bye to Save Mart, and you start shopping at Winco. This is a consumer exchange relationship. And what sociologists are telling us is that we're treating our social relationships with one another like we treat economic exchange relationships. In a consumer relationship, your needs are more important than the relationship. In a consumer relationship, your needs are more important than the relationship. So when the relationship isn't meeting your your needs, you're done with it. Because the personal needs that you have are way more important than your relationship with some checker at Save Mart. And the Bible says that your marriage is a covenant. And there's a lot of things that we could say about a covenant. But the one thing that I want to point out today is this. That in covenant, the relationship is more important than your needs. It's different than a consumer relationship. In covenant, the relationship is more important than your needs. In a consumer exchange relationship, your needs are more important than the relationship. The language of a a consumer says this, I'll be the spouse I'm supposed to be if you're the spouse that you're supposed to be. I'll meet your needs as long as you meet my needs. And when you fail to meet my needs, I'm out. The language of covenant says this, I'll meet your needs even if you don't meet mine. I'll be the spouse I'm supposed to be even if you're not. I know that this doesn't sound very romantic to you. But I assure you that there's nothing more fulfilling than two people putting the other's needs in front of their own. This is the purpose of Christian marriage is to reenact the gospel. It's supposed to be a reflection to the world around us of the relationship that Jesus Christ has with the church. People are supposed to see His glory in your relationship with your husband or your wife. People are supposed to recognize His authority by looking at your relationship. So the premise of Christian marriage is two people filled with the Holy Ghost getting together. The woman grants the husband leadership and the husband leads like Jesus. The purpose for Christian marriage is a gospel reenactment. It's not an end, it's a means to an end. I love at the end of this passage where Paul says essentially, even a good marriage points beyond itself. Even a good marriage is not ultimate. Even a good marriage is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. It points to something bigger, it points to the spousal love of Jesus Christ that can meet your needs. So, now understanding the premise of Christian marriage and understanding the purpose of Christian marriage, we can jump back into this passage and it starts to make a little bit more sense. Because it doesn't necessarily read for most of us like a good marriage. Let's read it. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What this means in Greek is wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And and again, I know what you're thinking is like, Paul, you never met my husband. You don't know this guy. He's not worth following. I can't respect somebody who's not respectable. I dare you to try it. Pretend. Pretend. ...that Paul was talking about your husband. I know he wasn't. He couldn't be. He's disgusting. (laughs) Pretend. Just for a week. That he was. Maybe it'll work. I don't know. For the husband... ...is the head of the wife... ...even as Christ is the head of the church... ...his body and Himself its Savior. There's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of debate today as to whether the husband should be the head of the home. And I love what Paul says here. It's not really up for debate. He just says the husband is the head of the home. Not he should be, not he could be, not he potentially could be if he could get his act together. The husband is the head of the home. And the question that we should be asking ourselves, men is, are we doing a good job as the head of the home, or are we doing a bad job as the head of the home? Are we leading like Jesus, or are we not leading like Jesus? The husband just is the head of the home. You're the problem. I'm sit- I, I don't have a lot of experience, but I'm sitting down with more and more people, and I am more and more convinced that, dudes, you are the problem. That it somehow always comes back to the husband, And his inability to lead like Jesus. Women who have a husband who's leading and loving them like Jesus don't despise this passage. They don't have a problem with this because they know that someone's laying their life down for them. This isn't difficult. So the question is not is the husband the head of the wife? He is. Are you doing a good job or are you doing a bad job? The other uh, really hot topic is this word head. What does this word head mean? And there's two camps. One believes that it's that it means um, ruler, leader. Uh, the other camp uh, believes that it means source or origin. So it would read that man is the source of woman. Is that yeah? So Everyone's arguing over the Word. Um, and, and for me, as I read this passage, head, headship is, divine, is defined. I don't know Greek. I don't know Hebrew. I've not been to seminary. But it's real simple to me. Headship is defined in this passage really clearly. Headship finds, finds its reference in Jesus. If you want to be a head, then you be like Jesus. Headship is Jesus-ship in this passage. Again, I don't know original languages, but it seems really clear to me. Hey, you be the head of your family like Jesus is the head of the church. Let me, let me say quickly what this passage isn't saying. That men are the head of women in general. It's not what is being said here. It's talking about the relationship in, with husbands and wives. This doesn't say that men are superior to women. We know that in the kingdom of God because um, subordination doesn't equal inferiority because we see this picture in the Trinity of Jesus, the Son of God, equal to God, submitting to God. And we know that Jesus isn't inferior to God. Subordination does not equal inferiority in the kingdom of God. It doesn't equal weakness like it equals weakness for us. It isn't saying that men and women are not equal. It's saying that men and women are meant to complement one another and that they have different roles. If you're in a Christian marriage, you should grant your husband leadership. And men, you should lead like Jesus. When should a woman submit to uh, her husband? When should a wife submit to her husband? This passage is really tough. Uh, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Because I would suggest this morning that there are many women here who do submit to their husbands. They submit to their husbands when they agree with their husbands. And that's not submission at all. That's agreement. You don't have the opportunity to submit until you have a disagreement. And again I'm not talking about sin here. I'm talking about gray areas. If there's sin going on in your relationship, you should appeal to a higher authority. Call the police. Call the church leaders. I'm not talking about I'm talking about gray areas here. This idea of headship means that you have a bride, men, and, 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 and uh, Jesus has a bride as well. And you treat your, your bride the way that she, Jesus <laughs> treats his bride. What does this mean? It means that you initiate. It means that you go first because what we know about Jesus is that he went first. He's the committed initiator of relationships. So, you can't manipulate him with your religion. He's the committed initiator of relationship. He goes first. What this means, man, is if you're going to be ahead and you're going to lead like Jesus, you initiate, you go first. If there's repentance that needs to happen, you go first. If there's prayer that needs to happen, then you initiate it. If there's reconciliation that needs to happen, you go first. The crown given to men to wear in this passage is a crown of thorns. You pursue your wife. You don't sit back and wait for your orders. You initiate. Again, Jesus didn't wait for us to initiate while we were still, dinner, while we were still sinners. He died for us. The other thing it means to be ahead is that you take responsibility because we know Jesus took responsibility for us. And it's hard enough to find a man that will even take responsibility for his own life. Let alone take responsibility for the problems of others. And aren't we glad that Jesus took responsibility for our sin? Aren't we glad that Jesus didn't sit like most of our men sit and say, that's not my problem. Is my sin Jesus' fault? Jesus took this upon himself. He took responsibility for change. And he brought about change by sacrificing his own life. It's the privilege of a husband to represent Christ to his wife... When your wife thinks of you, she should think of Jesus. Oh, my husband pursues me. Oh, yeah, Jesus pursues me. My husband loves me. Jesus loves me. My husband gives himself up for me. Jesus gives himself up for me. Paul's command is real clear to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Works every time. Every time. One size fits all. Love your wives. And understand that Jesus' love doesn't just feel things. Oh man, I just love you guys down there so much. I just feel so warm towards you. No, we know that Jesus' love did things. Jesus' love does things. Jesus' love forgives. Jesus' love redeems. Jesus' love takes charge. It doesn't just feel things. Jesus' love does things. If you don't hear uh, anything this morning as we close, hear this. Respect your husbands until he becomes respectable. I know he's not. There are times in our house that I'm not worth respecting. Husbands, love your wives. I know she's nagging. And she's wearing that pair of sweatpants. Love your wife. Respect your husbands until he becomes respectable. Love your wives until she becomes lovely. And let's reenact the gospel in our homes. Women, grant your husbands leadership. Husbands, lead like Jesus. Jesus. Tiffany and I made some pretty, uh, what we thought were radical decisions because I knew I couldn't replace her income. (laughs) She made twice as much as I did. And I knew that I needed to go to the church and say to him, hey, I need to get paid a little bit more because I think I need to support my family. And we're finding ourselves gravitating towards these traditional roles that we used to mock. And Tiffany feels like when she's with a client, she's cheating her kids. And when she's with her kids, she's cheating a client. And it seems like a lose-lose. And to top it all off, her business runs out of our house. And the church was planted in our house. <laughs> it just seems kind of crazy. So I need to get paid to work here at the church. I want to support my family. And it's cost. You know, um, we lost a home that we that we really loved. And... Um, But the fruit in our marriage has been unreal. And uh, I want to invite you, um, even today, if some of the things that I said to you were offensive to you or feel regressive, I'd invite you to go before God with those things and reinvestigate some of your assumptions about what the Bible says and why it says it. Let's pray together. If you're, if you're, um, <laughs> I want to tell you too, if you're single today, you know, th- those couples that are married realize that their marriage doesn't fix everything. Those of you who are single, I'm afraid, are living under that assumption that your fulfillment is wrapped up in getting married. And, um,. <clears throat> I'd encourage you to start framing it up in this way. I'm going to get married to reenact the gospel. If your marriage in, in, in your fantasy looks like breakfast in bed and snuggling, and you know, all, I would just frame it up a little differently. You're going to reenact the gospel. You're going to respect a dude until he becomes respectable, and, and husbands, you're going to love a wife until she becomes lovely. And aren't we thankful that, that Jesus is doing this with this church? He promises to make this church a radiant church. We don't call this radiant church because of we, we think we're pretty cool. We think that he's faithful and we think that he's committed and we want to participate with him, but he's going to make this a radiant church. Let's pray together. Married couples, would you stand? And uh, single people around them, would you lay hands on them? Uh, Jesus, we thank you for these people that you've brought together. And I thank you that you've brought them together to be a reflection of your glory. And to reenact the the truth of the gospel to the world around us. I just want to ask right now that you'd strengthen every couple in this church. Where they feel tired, uh, would you strengthen them? Where they feel drained, would you fill them with your Holy Spirit? Would you pour into them your Holy Spirit? And would your Spirit enable them to serve one another, to lay down their lives for one another? We ask God for um, maybe arguments or conversations that have been going on inside these relationships for years. I ask for a new perspective. I ask for a new life. I ask that you'd enable the men to go first and repent. I pray that you'd empower uh, the women to, to trust and to risk and to grant leadership to men who have at times failed as leaders. strengthen the marriages inside this church. And we recognize together that this church will probably only be as strong as its marriages. And, as the, um, and, and really as the marriages of the leaders go, so, go uh, so goes the church. So we pray for Mike and Katie that you'd strengthen their marriage. We pray for Eric and Lori that you'd strengthen their marriage. And for Tiffany and I, we're not above any of this. God, we need all of it. We need your Holy Spirit. In Jesus name, amen. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantbicelia.com. Until next time. there is a heavenly city That I'm compelled to find Oh, I love the flowers and trees And the smell of the grinding sea And all the beautiful things here in life I'm